Carnival cruises to a strong quarter as more people are ready for summer adventure. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Rollard. I'm here with Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. Jason, how are you today? Hey, doing great, Deidre. How are you? I'm doing well. And you know who else is doing well is Carnival Cruise Line. So, we had their earnings this morning. You know, we've talked a bit on this show about the move from goods to services, this sort of like post-pandemic thing, everyone wanting to go travel, experience things. Travel has been booming. Cruising kind of slow to catch up, but it seems like after the pandemic beat up cruising, the demand is back. So, total customer deposits, Carnival reported all-time high of $7.2 billion at the end of May, 26% increase compared to the prior quarter. company had record revenue, $4.9 billion. So, Jason, what should we make of the cruise boom? Well, I, th- I think it's it's just following the, the greater trend, really. I mean, when you, when you look at the, the tourism industry as a whole, I mean, this is a massive market opportunity, right? It's, it's greater than $2 trillion yeah. um, all in. And, and so, I mean, we saw clearly over the last, over the last few years, um, everybody had to kind of put everything on hold, right? And and I think that shift from goods to services has been a theme we've heard throughout earnings calls here over the last couple of quarters. And and we're we're just seeing travel companies left and right really benefiting from this sort of pent-up demand. Uh, Airbnb, another good example there. We're just seeing Bookings continuing to accelerate, uh, really rebounding from from the lows over the last several years, and, and uh, you know cruises. People are just ready to get out and, and experience things, and, and cruises are are a nice way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got yeah, Airbnb, air travel. All of the airlines have been relatively optimistic. Hotels also doing well. Thing about cruising though is it is expensive. You've yes. got yeah, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of energy costs there. There's a lot of shipbuilding costs. Big issue for Carnival. They reported a gap net loss of 407 million. Cash from operations is up into the positive zone, so that's good. The company's really struggling to pay off a lot of debt. They've paid down about 1.8 billion during the quarter, which is super impressive. Most of their debt, fixed debt, also good, so it's not you know subject to crazy interest rates. But with a company like this, and with companies that carry heavy debt, how should we think about? It? Is it just part of the business that we kind of need to factor in? It is. It's kind of a new normal. I think you got to get used to it at least for the next several years. It wasn't always that way. I mean, Carnival and cruise cruising cruise liners in general, they they do have to manage that balance sheet to an extent. But it's it's gotten a little bit more a little bit more troublesome for for companies like Carnival here recently. And you know, frankly, we were having this conversation over the last several years, wondering if these companies would even make it through. So it's good to see that they they've been able to make it through. But they they do have to have to deal with some of that debt. Over the next several years, it, 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 when you look at, I mean, the total debt thirty six and a half billion dollars. A lot of that is pretty expensive. You're right; it is fixed. It's they know what's coming, uh, but but they they are paying a lot right for that debt, and that's something that they're going to have to service for the next several years. And so, you know, when we look at when we look at companies that manage heavy debt loads, I mean, we, we want to look at something called the coverage ratio to get a better idea, at least as, as to you know, can this company service this debt? Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the coverage ratio, which is basically just 
taking a look at their operating income versus the the net interest expense, right? The money that they're bringing in versus the money they have to pay out for that debt. Now, you go back to 2018 for Carnival, the, the, the coverage ratio was 20. It was close to 20, right? Higher is better. That means that they're making a lot of money and they can service the debt they have on their balance sheet. Uh, you look at it today, and, and they technically don't even have a coverage ratio because, as you mentioned, operating income is in the negative, and they're paying a lot more to service that debt than they were just five years ago. Now, that doesn't mean it's always going to be this way, right? I mean, they, they kind of have to climb out of this hole that they sort of dug themselves into, and, and it was not fully uh, you know, of their own doing, right? They were just subject to the global pandemic, right? Every company had to deal with it. And, and, and so, Carnival, again, made it through. That's great to see. Uh, but, but they are going to have to figure out how to service this debt going forward, and much of that is going to uh, rely on demand, right? So, it is, if we can assume that the demand will remain steady, right? If we don't run into another global crisis, mm-hmm. then I think in time that balance sheet should continue to look better. And, and let's be fair too; they do have five and a half billion dollars in cash and short-term investments on the balance sheet, so they have liquidity, right? And they have a business. It's just the priority right now is to make sure uh, that they are focused on that expense control and, and service that debt, uh, get themselves in a little bit of a better position with the balance sheet, and that's just going to take time. It's going to take time, and it's really going to it's going to have to be increased demand, you know, going forward. And as yeah. you said, that's you know, we we never really know, you know, they've got a turnaround program. It seems like every company gives their turnaround program a cute little name. This is Carnival, <laughs> they've got Sea Change. They're setting some pretty ambitious goals for 2026. One of which is they're going to more than double the return on invested capital between now and 2026. It'd be the highest level in two decades for the company. You know, a lot has to go right, and at the same time, they're trying to to cut back debt, but they still have to build, you know, build new ships, build new amenities, keep attracting customers. The market didn't love the earnings. Is this kind of healthy skepticism about the plan, or is it something else? I think it's probably healthy skepticism. I mean, you, you look at it. You know, we're seeing a rebound. I think the question is, will that rebound sustain? Right? Is this sustainable demand, um, or is this going to be something that sort of normalizes here over the coming over, over the coming years? And so, I, I think it's probably healthy skepticism, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I mean, management's job in any company is to tell you how awesome they are, right? I mean, you right. They, you, you want them to be honest, right? But they're, they're all Always going to really try try to to give you the, the most glass half full sort of view, and, and I think that that's what they're doing here, setting goals, especially seemingly un, un, uh, unachievable goals sometimes, can be a good thing, right? You want to set that bar high, so even if you don't hit it, uh, you know you're still you're still hitting some some pretty lofty goals. I mean, I think Elon Musk is one that comes to mind where. He sets a lot of crazy goals. People say you'll never achieve that, and I don't think he—that's not necessarily the goal, right? He's like, maybe, maybe I'm not trying to achieve that goal, but I want to get somewhere close to it because if you get somewhere close to it, those are still pretty darn good results. Uh, so, so I think in this case, you know, maybe it's healthy skepticism on the market's part, but I absolutely do not fault management for setting those lofty goals uh, because, again, part of their job is to really uh, paint that paint that picture as as, uh, as nicely as they can. So it's kind of a shoot for the stars, maybe land on the moon scenario. There you go, perfect. <laughs> well, let's talk about cruises are back. IPOs are they back? I'm not so sure, but we've got another one that was announced. Uh, this time it's Israel's Oddity Tech. Nobody's probably heard of this, but they probably may have seen the ill maquillage makeup ads in their feed because man, they are in my feed so much. <laughs> they're, they're everywhere. And this company is interesting. It's been around since 2013. It had uh, around 325 million in net revenue in 2022. 
Is it time for IPO direct to consumer businesses now? Is this is this is, are we back? I, well, I think if it's it's a great time if if the recent Kava IPO is any indicator, right? I mean, that was really well received, yeah. and I, I do think the market is ready for. You know, some real businesses, no funky corporate structures, just some good consumer-driven businesses that just understandable, you no know, no SPACs or anything like that. And I, mean, I think the market is really excited for these types of businesses. And you know, Kava probably has gotten off to a little bit of a hotter start than most anyone would have assumed. And I would imagine that that we will see that pull back in time. But but it just goes to show the optimism that's out there for some for strong brands and consumer-driven businesses. And it it sounds certainly like. This could be another one in in oddity tech, which I, I'm not very familiar with the business itself, but I am somewhat familiar with the market. Right, beauty and wellness is a tremendous market opportunity, mm-hmm. um, and and so to even capture just a little bit of it could be very meaningful. Yeah, you know they're they're pretty strong because they've got around 40 million users, but then they've got about four million active customers buying, uh, you know, at least the one thing a year. So there's there's a lot to like about it, but I worry about some of the direct to consumer companies that IPO'd in the in the last couple of years. Results not so great. Allbirds, the sneaker company, they're down around 95%. Warby Parker, eyeglasses down around uh, 79%. Barkbox uh, down 88%. Did these companies just go public too early, or is there something about direct-to-consumer that is a little tricky as an investment? It's possible they went public too early, um, but but I you know I, I think you have to look at it from two different perspectives, right? I mean, for investors, uh, it, it it's sort of maybe not the greatest situation right now when you're seeing that stock price uh, taking such a hit. But the company was able to raise, obviously, a lot of money going public, uh, which is a good thing, assuming that they're doing good things with that capital. I feel like, again, you get back to that sort of the, the, the state of the market today. It's, it's, been, it's been a real lull over the last couple of years. I think a lot of a lot of a lot of investors are ready for for a lot of these companies to get out there and show show us what they're made of, and and uh, so even if it's a little bit early, as an investor, yeah, you, you keep an eye on that. It doesn't mean they're uninvestable, but oftentimes when it comes to IPOs, you, you sort of want to sit back and just and wait and watch the story play out a little bit, let that enthusiasm wane uh, to to then understand is this a business that really has staying power and and and. Uh, you know that that's gonna that that remains to be seen in regard to Odyssey Tech for sure. Well, I think what's interesting about Oddity is that they're building a platform versus just building brands. I mean, they've got Il Maquillage, they've got a second brand, Spoiled Child. They're building that one out. They're well, probably they've done a couple of acquisitions. They're trying to build out other brands. So I think one of the things that's interesting with this one is that maybe it's not just reliant on. The trend for one thing, hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, it it does sound like it is. I mean, Oddity is is the sort of the umbrella, right? And and you have a number of brands that sort of fall under that umbrella. Very tech driven, very data driven, and and that obviously is a good thing. You know, going through their S one, they they did not fail to to mention artificial intelligence more than once. And so <laughs> they that'll did probably, indeed. That'll probably play in their favor as well. Um, I you know, and and I think about this, and I think about other companies that that are. Data driven, so to speak, right? I mean, I think of something like a Stitch Fix, where on paper, I yeah, I get it, I understand what they're trying to do, but at the end of the day, are you really a data company? I mean, you're trying to serve serve consumers, right? So let's not lose sight of that. And so I think it just remains to be seen exactly, you know, their position in this market. Again, such a big market opportunity. I mean, I think they quoted in their in their S one. I mean, they're talking about a six hundred billion dollar market opportunity in the S one. Now, that's clearly not their total addressable market or serviceable addressable market. But again, to capture even just a little piece of that could be very meaningful. 
Yeah, one of the things that that I really like about the beauty space is they just keep adding more products to your routine. So it used to be you would just kind of wash your face. Maybe there'd be like a moisturizer. Now there's like a serum. There's all these different <laughs> things. So there's it's a it's a good business to be to be invested in because you can just keep adding more things and customers will buy them. They will. I will tell you. I mean, I you know I have a wife and, and two daughters and I I've seen my fair share of of beauty and wellness products in our house. Yeah, it's very reliable, steady market. Well, a lot of times when we have an IPO, we're saying like X is the next Y. You mentioned Kava. But everyone was saying, is that the next Chipotle? So with Audity, the question I'm asking is if they're the next Elf Beauty. So Elf uh, is uh, ELF. They're moderately priced. They're uh, in like CVS and things like that. Their stock has done incredibly well, up about 328 percent since it launched in 2016. They're not, Oddity's not in stores yet. And one of the things we've seen with direct to consumer, you know, I've talked about Warby Parker earlier, they had to build, they had to go into stores. Is that part of the direct to consumer thing? Did some of those companies maybe go into stores too fast? What do you think about that as a part of the playbook? Well, I think eventually you need to go into stores. I mean, I think this kind of boils down to that word we've used before in the retail space, omnichannel, right? It's ultimately you want to be everywhere your consumer wants you to be. Um, and there's there's plenty of research out there that, that supports the idea that for companies to be able to take that leap into becoming a billion dollar plus revenue business, they really do need that physical presence. I mean, it is just it's it's a cost effective way to acquire new customers. I mean, you can only go so far really as an online business in many cases. I'm not saying it's 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 you know that way always, but but generally speaking, having that physical presence is an advantage. I mean, one that comes to mind is Harry's, the razor company, right? I mean, I, right. I I actually subscribed to Harry's, believe it or not, back in the market foolery days when we were running ads for Harry's. I got the market <laughs> foolery offer, and I still I still have Harry's mailed to me every quarter, right? And it's just a great way to get my razors and shaving cream. But even now, you find Harry's products in Target, for example, or in in stores everywhere. And so I think being able to make that leap to becoming really that billion dollar plus business, it requires that physical presence. The the company that comes to mind for for me, is is Alta a very strong online presence, but also a very strong physical presence. And uh, I, you know, I could just speak from experience. I mean, I, I see my, my my wife and my my daughters love to purchase it both ways, right? They love to go to the stores, but they also will purchase stuff online. And you see something like Alta, where they acquired some technology along the way to incorporate augmented reality into their app, so yep. you can actually kind of try stuff on via just your phone, right? And you don't necessarily have to go to the store, but there's also no substitute for reality, I think, as we've all come to learn. And so, ultimately, I think it really does all boil down to that omni-channel concept. And I would imagine for Oddity to make that make that leap to really take this business to the next level, it will have to rely on a physical presence to some degree. Thanks so much for your time today. Always good to chat with you. Thank you. figure out the remote, hybrid, and in-office dynamic, one business is creating a long-term cultural edge. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Robert Glazer, author and founder of Acceleration Partners, to discuss why investors should look for business with a cultural advantage and how to spot one. Bob, you're a big culture guy, but you think many investors have made a mistake in not focusing on culture and CEO leadership as a proxy for performance. Maybe they were just looking at revenue growth, especially during those low interest times in, in the pandemic. Yeah, look, uh, Peter Drucker, kind of the, one of the fathers of leadership, always said culture eats, eats strategy for lunch. And I think we've, we're, we're coming off a, a, a very strange period that I think 
for those who have only lived in it, 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 it feels like it's been that way all the time. For those of us kind of before it feels more abnormal and you could, you could cover a lot of mistakes with, with, with free money in the, in the last five or 10 years. But I think as we think about, it and we look at companies that have had sustained outperformance, you know, there, there tends to be great leadership and great culture behind that. And there's a lot of numbers and some studies that have uh, been done with public companies to, to back that up. What, what have you learned from those studies? Yeah. Uh, you know, I read one, so one glass door looked at 10 years of the sort of the highest performing, uh, companies versus that were public versus stock prices. Another one fortune and great places to work looked at it. And it was consistently standard deviations higher over the long term with the companies that had better cultures and leadership. And I, I, that really shouldn't be a surprise if, if, for those of us who have worked in these organizations and usually, you know, talent leaves bad leadership. And, um, you look at, at companies where I think there's poor leadership, poor culture, and you, you don't have good innovation and it's hard to exist these days. If you can't innovate, you know, you and I are chatting before, look at a company like Intel, you know, just, I mean, they were just the shining star and Andy Grove and he wrote all the leadership books. And now you have a decade of just missing market after market and poor engagement. It just feels like it's a, a constant downhill at this point. Yeah. A lot of missed opportunities starting, you know, it's, it's, it's tough when Steve jobs comes to you and says, Hey, we're going to make an iPhone. Would you like to, <laughs> would you like to make some chips for it? And your response is that the numbers simply don't work for that. Yeah. It's one, it's one of those great, you know, greatest, worst decisions of all time books. You'd like, you'd like that one back. Yeah. I mean, you can blame, you can blame a decade of chip, uh, cheap money, but is that, is that the only uh, is that the only culprit when you're talking about these, these organizations with let's say focus on growth at all costs plus poor leadership? Yeah, no, I don't think it's the culprit. I think it sort of covers it up. I can't, I can never remember whether it was Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger that said, you know, when the tie goes out, we see who's not wearing their bathing suit. And, you know, I think like that's been the case. And so think about, you know, all these, the, the, the series of corporate malfeasance shows that we've all <laughs> watched over the last couple of years, you know, as soon as, as soon as the musical chairs stopped, everyone kind of saw what was actually going on there at, at WeWork and Theranos and some of these, you know, companies where, again, you had very sort of autocratic, unhumble leadership. It looked really good on the outside. I think the suspension of disbelief, but then when you actually see what's going on and that, that's the difference between putting together, I think, uh, what looks like a good year or two and putting together, you know, a five-year run or, or, or a decade of, of outperformance. Yeah. I mean, Theranos is, is, was a straight up fraud. I think that's, that's a, a little bit more difficult, but you know, there are examples of companies that have been high growth, high turnover that have done fabulously well for, for shareholders. Like, like, Am you know, Amazon would be the exception to that rule. Tesla might be another exception to that rule where they're working people to the bone, but it's, it works for their company. Yeah. And I think it, I think it's really, those are great points because look, you know how a lot of people look at a Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Tom Brady. And they're like, well, I don't, I don't need to go to school. You know, I, I, I'm going to be that. And those are just the 1% of the 1% exception. So once a generation, we give companies sort of a, a suspension of, of disbelief and, and Tesla and Amazon, you know, I think one, you know, both had incredibly product visionary uh, leaders, um, not known actually for great cultures, but known for just incredible product innovation and, and, and massive competitive advantages. And that can, that can hold you, uh, afloat for a while, but you know, as, as you know, you, some people might argue as you, like you were saying, maybe, maybe that was sort of built into the, you know, the, the, the growth rate, uh, at Amazon for a while, that was just sort of part of the equation, but, uh, you know, the last couple of years have been harder for everyone since the pandemic. So it, that sometimes you, you can definitely get things working in your, in your favor for a while, but yeah, Tesla is a, 
a tricky one, right? I mean, if you look at the numbers, if you look at the thing, like it's a, it's a pretty rough place to work. It's pretty high turnover, but I, I mean, there's not that many Elon Musk's out there. Yeah. I mean, you said, quote, we have a whole generation of leaders who don't know how to make money or grow companies in a way that doesn't break people End quote, you know, for, for people on the outside, what are the signs that a company is going through this? What's that, what's that look like in action? Yeah. And, and, and again, we have a lot of leaders, you know, that have 10 years of not having to make money and you can always get more and it was cheaper and, and not knowing how, to, and, and part of the real downside of that is I think a lot of companies haven't figured out product uh, market fit. So let's do a perfect example of this with some, you know, public companies like food delivery, right? I mean, so here's a thing where at, at, at a certain price, uh, that you're willing to charge the customer is really interested, but you make no money. Uh, or if you try to charge the, pr- the the price where you make money, then 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 the customer is not interested. So you know, I I, I think we've had a the the way to look at this is where you see you know tremendous revenue growth. That's not, not that profit is everything, but to me, profit is, do you have something sustainable? Do you have product market fit where, where the profit is not there, where there's a ton of turnover, where you don't see the company generating those next level of, of leaders look for Steve job, all the faults he had, you know, he built and developed a lot of the leaders at, at, at Apple, including his successor, Tim cook. So, you know, you, when you, when you see a company that's getting the, the leadership, a lot of the leaders are coming up from within they're staying it. They're not, you know, it's not just this constant revolving door of, of talent in which no one seems like they're, they're willing to stay very long. Let's talk. I know you are covering culture. Now the big shift is, is figuring out remote work. In my opinion, the only public company that I have seen manage this well is Airbnb. Essentially, and, and different companies have different abilities. If you're making car, if, if you're making cars, you need people to show up. If you need security, yeah, security at your headquarters, you need people yeah. to show up. All right, with all those caveats out of the way, I think Airbnb figured it out. They basically said, "Hey, if you're working, you can go to an office. You can be at home, but we're going to have these events pretty set throughout the year, and you're expected to be there. You'll know about them months, years in advance." I think that, like that might be the is is that the only way to do it at this point. The way to do it is to pick a strategy that that makes sense to the team and the people and then support the strategy, which is exactly what Airbnb did. A lot of these companies were doing it for the wrong reasons. During the great resignation, we got to get people. So let's tell them they can work from wherever they want. And then they move and do whatever they want. They tell them they got to come back to the office or you got companies with, you know, that have been operating really well during the pandemic, but they got some real long-term leases in New York city. And so they declare you are going to have to come back to work, not with a business reason or not like Airbnb said, Hey, it's important to our culture that people get together and they do these things, but with sort of an authoritarian, you know, mindset, the, the opposite of Airbnb, I think is, you know, Goldman Sachs and David Solomon. So in January, 2022, when Goldman's coming off the best quarterly profit in the history of the company and revenue with everyone working from home. He says, we're going to force people back in the office on this date and and remote work is an aberration that we're going to fix. Wow. That to me, sounds like a huge slap in the face. Your employees who just worked through a pandemic recorded the best quarter in the history of the company. And you're telling them that's something you need to fix as fast as possible. Cause it's an aberration fast forward a year. Everyone is back in the office because they're required. Goldman has the worst quarter that they have in 10 years. Now, that is not because they were working from home or not working from home in those cases, but clearly there's a lot of factors at play and it is not that black and white. And so I think, look, if I'm someone at Goldman Sachs, I'm saying, look, we've got a 
$50 million IPO pitch tomorrow. Like you better be in the office. Like we're not doing this on zoom like because we're about relationships and in person, and we're going to lose if we do it on zoom. And by the way, then there's no bonus for you. So the employee understands, but if you're crunching a spreadsheet and the deal's closing tomorrow for 16 hours a day, I don't need you to come into the office to lock yourself in the office for, for 16 hours. So like, let's focus a little bit on the, on the why we're doing it and the type of company and the type of culture that we want to build and understand that we can't be everything to everyone. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that leaders are making today. And it's going into marketing and all kinds of stuff, just trying to be everything to everyone and not, not having a, a message and a focus that resonates kind of with a core group of employees and customers. Well, let's stick on that that example for a little bit though, because cyclicality hit Airbnb and Goldman Sachs a little bit differently. You know, it might not just be the in-person culture. Airbnb still has people traveling that want to use their services post-pandemic, and a lot of those are maybe higher-income folks that that haven't been hit by the recessionary winds that that many others have faced. In the case of Goldman Sachs, well, maybe they're Airbnb travelers, but they've also experienced a complete dearth of IPOs after the pandemic, and, and deal flow is completely dried up. Despite what, no matter where they are. No, right. It's not. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's not. It doesn't. It's one. It's not absolute. Uh, from from either way. Hundred percent. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Willard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 